Today we are going to be talking about the second thing that happens in the garden. The first is the prayerlessness and the prayer of Jesus and the prayerlessness of the disciples. And remember the last words that Jesus says to his disciples before they are arrested is pray lest you enter into temptation. Whenever you look at something that's a last, a first or a last, there's almost always significance to it. And so the fact that the last thing Jesus said before his suffering, before the cross to his disciples was pray lest you enter into temptation. You know your temptations. You know your struggles better than anyone else. God knows it better than you, but you know it better than anybody else. Only God knows it better. And therefore, pray about your struggle. That's what he's saying. Pray lest you enter into temptation. Have you prayed about the things that you face, the way that you fail? Pray for those things. So then Jesus will now be arrested. And what Jesus is going to go through in the next 24 hours is going to be the most effective, powerful event that happens on the face of the earth in all of its history. There is no other event that has brought such a change and difference to our world than what Jesus is going to go through here. And it's not because he conquered. It's not because he did some great thing. It's because he suffered. It's because he conquered through suffering. It's because he went to the cross. It's because he died in order that we might have life. It's this, this idea that the church has these inverse qualities that are about them and Jesus lived them out. And today, they're, they're, Christianity is the largest religion in the world. It's the largest organization in the world. There are 2.3 billion Christians worldwide today. And let me reword that there to make it accurate. There are 2.3 confessing, 2.3 billion confessing Christians in the world. Because we realize that not everybody that confesses to be a Christian is really a Christian, right? And so, but we make that clear. There are 2.3 billion. It has spread in such a powerful way. And it all started here in this 24 hours. And then you add the resurrection to it. And all of a sudden now you've got the gospel going around the world. Why, does it, why, why are, have so many people been so interested? Why did the gospel spread so fast in the first few decades? And why is it spread so large today? Part of it is that inverse message I talked about. Let me just give you some examples of that. The Bible tells us instead of us being strong or strong arming people, we are to be meek, to walk in meekness. Instead of conquering, we are to bring peace and be peacemakers. Instead of self-seeking, we are to, to love and put other people's interests above our own. Instead of lording over people, when you're, a, when, when you're a leader, when you're an authority, and I think this even works in, in corporations, in organizations that aren't Christian run, when you're a Christian leader in an organization that might not even be Christian, then you are to not lord over people, but to serve them. You look how you can serve your people who are under you to make them the very best that they can be. And you find that that's the best way to lead. It's certainly the best way for a Christian to lead, but it's the best way for anyone to lead. Rather than I'm in charge, you do what I say. You serve them that you can get the very best out of the people that you are leading. And instead of helping those who can help you back, Jesus said, help those who can't help you. These principles and others has caused Christianity over 2,000 years to help hurting people, struggling people. 
There's been more hospitals, more orphanages. There's been more help towards those who are struggling, more help given to refugees who have their home country destroyed and have to flee through Christianity than any other organization. And this all comes down to the way that Jesus gave his life. He willingly went forward to die. Now, I, I just, just a quick question. How many of you guys know who Jordan Peterson is? Just raise your hand if you do. You're aware of them. All right. So, I don't know, a, a good number of you. Most of you don't. Jordan Peterson is an academic. He's a professor. He's a psychiatrist uh, and very successful. Uh, he wrote a book on the Old Testament, which is where I discovered him at. As a psychiatrist, writing a book on the Old Testament, sometimes I like to get out of my echo chamber just reading things that agree with me and start to look at how other people look at it. And I found the things that he shared to be very intriguing. And then I found a few videos by him where he is no longer an atheist. He was an atheist, but he has come to be at least a theist. I don't know whether he's a Christian or not. I can't find that. But I do know he is struck deeply by the work that Jesus did on the cross. And he shares something on that and shares it in tears. It's very passionate. But he shares the, why the account of Jesus is radically different than anything else in the world. He calls it a limit story, meaning you can't, you can't make it any worse. That's the limit to the story. It's a limit story. You can't make it any worse. First of all, he dies the worst death you could possibly die, crucifixion. And I'm going to try to quote him through this, but it's a loose quoting, okay? Uh, he says that you can't die any worse way. The Romans came up with crucifixion to make you die in the worst way possible. And he dies that death and he was innocent and he was young and he didn't hurt anyone and he helped people and he knew it was coming. He says that's part of the story. And uh, he willingly went to the cross and he was betrayed by a friend and he was denied by another friend. He was left alone when he was arrested and he was given over to violent men who beat him, mocked him, shoved crowns of thorns on his head, scourged him and then made him carry his cross up on top of Golgotha and there crucified him. And he points out that, that this becomes an example to us as to how we are to live in sacrifice because that was a great sacrifice. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. Again, he sounds Christian to me. I don't know that he is, uh, but he has a lot of really interesting takes on it. And I love the way he presents what's going to happen in the next 24 hours because it is a great sacrifice. It is the greatest of all sacrifices and we want to follow after Christ. We, we, want, we say, our, our, as Christians, we say, Lord, I want to live for you, and that's my first choice, but I'll die for you as well. If I live to be 90, I'll serve you, or 95, or whatever, however long people are living now, I'll serve you. If I, if I die tomorrow, and I know I'm going to die tomorrow, I'll serve you today. Even if not serving you could save my life, I'll still serve you today. That's the willingness of saying to him, we, we are your children, we are yours, and we will live for you. That was the commitment that Christ had to our salvation, to, to us coming to Christ. And it's the commitment that we have as we live back for him. So let's take a look at this, this arrest and betrayal. And I want you to notice as we do the sovereignty of God working with the free will of men. A lot of times people want to argue that there's sovereignty or there's free will. 
that God is sovereign and does everything he wants or men have free will, but you can't have both. That would mean that you are a robot that God preordains everything for you to do. But God's sovereignty and free will coexist. In other words, God is so sovereign that he allows men to have free will. Does that mean that he never intervenes on our free will? No, sometimes he does. And we see that happening here in this passage. So we'll be looking at that as well. So we start in verse 47. It says, and while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude. Now, he's still speaking. He's still saying to his disciples, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And then suddenly there is a multitude. Who is this multitude? Well, when you put all of the accounts of the garden arrests together, you learn that there were several people there. There were the chief priests who were there. Not the chief priest himself, but the chief priest. These would be Sadducees. Remember, Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. They were the ones that oversaw the temple. So the chief priests are there. This is pretty significant. If you're going to have chief priests show up at your arrest, then you know they want you arrested. And then there were temple officers. These, this would be the police officers for the temple area. Uh, they were given clubs because they, the, the Romans had swords, so they had clubs to, to take care of things. Uh, there were the elders. The elders are the Sanhedrin. They're the ruling judges in Israel uh, under the Romans, right? But they're still the ruling judges. And they're there, at least a portion of them are there. Just because it says the elders were there doesn't mean all of the elders were there. That's a, that's a fallacy people sometimes fall into. It'll say some people are, or it will say this group is there. Doesn't mean every one of them. It just means that there were those there who were elders. The scribes were there. It tells us scribes were the most academic of all of the religious leaders. They were entrusted the law and they copied the law and they interpreted the law for the people. And Jesus had a, a run in with the, the, uh, the scribes. Oftentimes it's interesting, the scribes would agree with Jesus, but then they would suddenly disagree at something that he would say. Or it would even seem that Jesus would provoke the scribes. They would like agree with him and then Jesus would go one step further. And then they would go, ah, can't agree with that. The, uh, there were Pharisees that were there. Nicodemus, uh, Joseph Arimathea were Pharisees. And there was, it says, with them a Roman cohort. Now, a Roman cohort was 600 men. Again, we don't necessarily believe that with these other guys were 600 Roman soldiers. That a cohort could also mean a part of that cohort. That they would take a section of that and they would send it off with them to make sure Jesus was arrested. Remember, they'd already gone to Pilate. They'd already secured permission to be able to arrest him. And so now there's a Roman cohort that is there as well. So this is a significant number of people. Very important people are there and temple police and Roman soldiers. Now we read what happens next. And he who was Judas, one of the 12, went before them and drew near Jesus to kiss him. Now this is the betrayal and it's a deep betrayal. Judas has been a pretender for a while. He has been stealing from them. And he has gone off and made a deal to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But they need to identify him. It's dark. They need to know they're getting the right person. And so Judas has to lead them there and he has to identify them. So Judas says, the person I kiss, that's the one. Now, in their day, 
There would be, there, men would kiss men on the cheek, like in, in some places in the world, like in Italy. They'll kiss each other on the cheek, right? Now, that's not Americans. We don't do that, all right? That's not, that's not our culture. American men don't kiss each other on the cheek, all right? We give a firm handshake. And during COVID, a firm pound out. There you go. All right, buddy. On the other West Campus, for a while, I had a guy that would come up and I'd go to, I'd be hanging out afterwards. I'd go to meet him and he would kiss me on the cheek. And it feels whiskers against my face. And I was like, okay, buddy, that's, that, that's, not, that's not cool. He did it a couple of times to me. And then I, I went into self-defense mode. He would come up to me and I would see him and I'd just keep walking around him. I'm like a boxer, wait, you know, just making sure I kept my, you're, you're not coming in. I'm not going to let you come in, you know, for, for that kiss. And the Bible does say, greet one another with a holy kiss, but that's cultural, all right? We can talk about that at some other time, why some things in the Bible are cultural. And that's, uh, that's one of the cultural things. The, in the Greek, there are different words for kisses. And this, you know, there's a, there's a word for a child kissing a parent, a parent kissing a child. There's those kind of words. But this is a kiss for equals. So Judas saw himself very much as an equal. And this is a deep betrayal. Jesus says to him, when Jesus, Judas walks up, friend, why have you come? In another one of the gospels. And here he says to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Is this the depth of your betrayal? Did he think Jesus didn't know? Did he just not care that he would betray him with such an awful thing? The Bible says in Psalms 41, 9, every man, um, even my familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate bread at my table, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, we know this is the Old Testament foretelling Judas, but it is also David writing about Ahithophel, who was a trusted counselor. And when there was a coup and David was removed as the king of, of Israel for a while. I don't know if you knew that that happened. But his son Absalom became king for a while. And Ahithophel, his friend, maybe one of his closest friends, who sat at his table and ate with him, became a counselor to Absalom. And so David said, he has lifted up his heel against me. And this also foretells Judas. There are only a few suicides in the Bible. And Ahithophel and Judas are two of them. They both killed themselves. And this heel strike it talks about when it says they've lifted up my heel against me. There, when you lift your heel up against someone, when, you're, when, when you are ready to, if you're stomping on, you are doing great damage. Ahithophel was trying to do great damage to David and Judas was trying to do great damage to Jesus. Although when he hears that Jesus is condemned to death, Judas will then repent or relent. Doesn't mean he repents of doing it. It means that he didn't want Jesus to be killed, which we'll, we'll cover when we get there because we will get him trying to give the money back as we make it through the book of Luke. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Judas is an enemy who wants a heel strike and it is deceitful. Now, God, through his foreknowledge, had foretold this event, but it didn't mean Judas didn't have free will. Here is where you find so many people struggle with the concept of free will. God is sovereign and he's going to do what he's going to do, but God gives people free will and God can work his sovereignty around men's decisions. And there's no reason to think that that can't be done. Man's sovereignty or man's free will is not so powerful that God's like, oh, I want to do that, but I can't do that now because they chose to do that. God can either stop you from being able to do something and, and God reserves the right for that. 
or God can work within your free will to accomplish what he wants to do. And we call this providence, God's providence. God does his will in, in our lives through our free will and his sovereignty. God is so sovereign that he chose that anyone who would believe in him could be saved. God gave it to all mankind. Anyone who believes in him can be saved. That's the sovereignty of God and the choices that he made. Now, once Judas kisses him on the cheek, John tells us that Jesus walks forward. So he identifies him. He says, friend, why have you come? And you betray me with a kiss. And then he walks forward to this multitude. And he says to them, who are you looking for? And let me read that to you. That's John chapter 18, verses four through six. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things would come upon him. He, know, he knows it. This isn't happening to him. He's surrendering to it. Went forward and said to them, who are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, if you have your Bible in front of you, you'll notice that the he is in italics. That's because it's not in the original uh, manuscript. He says, I am. And the, the translators thought it would be good if you had he there to help you understand it. Like when Jesus says, I am, you're like, well, what does that mean? So they thought, well, let's put I am he to help you understand it. The Greek, this is a Greek manuscript, John's Greek manuscript. The Greek is ego ami, I am. And when you go to the Septuagint, that's the Greek copy of the Old Testament. And Moses is in front of the burning bush. And Moses says, who should I say has sent you? And the, the angel of the Lord or God speaks from the burning bush and says, ego a me. Tell them ego a me has sent you. Tell them I am. So it's translated in the King James Version. Tell them I am that I am has sent you. So now Jesus says to them, I am. And look what happens. They drew back and fell to the ground. This whole multitude, which we've already talked about who they are, when Jesus says, I am, the, vo the, the, the force of him being the great I am, saying I am, knocks them back down on the ground. And then Jesus walks up to them again and says, who are you looking for? And they're like, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I told you, ego on me. And then they tie him up and they take him away and they arrest him. Actually, from that point, there's a scuffle that ensues, some things that happen as they are beginning to tie him up. And we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But this is another statement that Jesus is God. Clearly understand that the Bible teaches Jesus is God. We will do in the future several passages that say that clearly. But I want to remind you that John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God and all things were made by him, for him and through him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld the glory of the only begotten of the father. That's John 1, 14 that I put in at the end of that front section. So the creator is Jesus. All things were created by him, for him and through him and nothing was created without him. He created everything. You go back to Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in Genesis 1, 26, let us make man in our own image. 
In the first chapter of the Bible, you have the complexity of God showing up in this question by God or the statement by God, let us make man in our own image. It has to be God saying that because the us is making. Let us make man in our own image. And then it goes down a little further and says, so he created them in his image, male and female, he created them. So both male and female are made in the image of God, but the but God as a unit, let us make man in our own image. So you find that complexity in the Hebrew Bible in chapter one, and now you get clarity to that. So Jesus is saying, I am, he's declaring to be God here in the garden as he is arrested. Now we go on. It says that um, after Judas kisses him and Jesus asks him about that, uh, it says when those around him saw what was going to happen, this is the disciples, maybe a couple of others, but when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So now they're sleeping, right? And they wake up and there's all of this multitude, including soldiers and, and the temple police. And they're like, and Jesus had just got done telling them in the upper room, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy a sword. And we talked about self-defense two weeks ago. So if you really are interested in what the Bible has to say about whether or not you can defend yourself, you can look up that study. But we looked at it. But now Jesus says, sell your cloak and buy a sword. And then they went, we've got two of them. So they're going to fight this whole with two swords. They got two swords. And they're like, should we fight them? We know Peter's got one of them. So I don't know who else has the other one. Hopefully it's Simon the Zealot because he probably has some experience or at least training of some kind to be able to fight. But they're thinking, he told us to buy a sword. Do you want us to, to, to fight him? And then it says, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, we know that that one from the book of John, that that one was Peter. And we could have guessed that anyway. Even if we didn't know John said that, that it was Peter. So Peter has told Jesus, Peter denied his denial. When Jesus said, you're going to deny me, Peter said, I will never deny you. So he denied his denial and I'll die for you. So when these guys show up, while the others are saying, should we strike? Peter's like, come here. And he takes out his sword and he goes after the servant of the high priest. So there's soldiers there. There's temple police that are there. There's religious leaders that are there. Who does Peter go after? The servant of the high priest. It's like he looked around. I can take that one. I can take that guy. He's going to go after him. Now, there's all kinds of, of pastors have done all kinds of things with this passage. They'll say, well, Peter, if he's right-handed, which right there's an if. Why are we making such a big deal out of this if he's right-handed? We don't know if he's right-handed or not. But if Peter was right-handed, the only way to cut off the right ear of an individual is if they're running from you. So the servant turned around and ran and Peter chopped off his ears, was able to cut off his right ear. Uh, I don't know if that's true. Is there anybody else that looks at that a little suspect? First of all, we don't know what happened. And if you're gonna, you have a sword and you're gonna, and you're gonna go for the head, and you go too far this way, seems to me you could get that right ear. It doesn't seem to me like, you know, his head's not in the way at that point. I realize from here his head's in the way, but his head's not in the way from this side. So who knows, who knows what the servant did? Did the servant see him, scream, duck, and, and you know, maybe duck with the right ear showing, and whack, there goes his right ear? We have no idea. That's one of the things that drives me crazy is that we like to overanalyze certain things that don't really mean anything. And a lot of time is wasted, kind of like I'm wasting time talking to you about people who do this thing. <laughs> but the point is that Peter 
probably was aiming for the head, but he's a fisherman. He's not very good at the sword, with the sword. And he gets the guy's ear. And a um, couple of, of points before we move on. The disciples were willing to fight for, for, for Christ. Do you want us to fight for you? And really at that point, they're, they're going to die. They know they'll die. This is 12 against whatever the cohort is, whatever the temple police are, and with two swords. And they'll die trying to do this. But they're willing to do that. Now, eventually, all of the disciples will be martyred. All 12 of them will be martyred. Whether you want to add in Matthias or, or, or Paul, all of them are martyred. Uh, John is the only one that may have died a natural death, although we don't know that, but he was still boiled in oil before he was, was cast to the, Pat, uh, the island of Patmos by Domitian, the emperor Domitian. So they all suffered greatly. None of them, it, it, there are people who say, well, you know, um, let, me, let me go back just a little bit. There's a, 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 a um, consensus among scholars that the disciples believed Jesus was risen from the dead. Now listen to what they say. Their consensus is not that Jesus rose from the dead. Their consensus is that there was an empty tomb and that the disciples believed Jesus rose from the dead. Because part of the ad hoc arguments people have today is the disciples stole the body and, um, and they made their plan and they went out and planted the, the you know, churches around the world. But none of them under being tormented for Christ, which could have easily have just said, I, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't follow him. We stole the body. We hid it. They could have saved their lives. None of them did that. They all went to death. They all held it. And that's very unlikely. Now, people will say, well, people die for religious things all the time. And that's true. But they die for religious things when they think they're true. The disciples, and it might be a lie, but they think it's true. The disciples believe Jesus is risen from the dead. So they're willing to be killed and die for him. And that also speaks to us that that's the way we live for Christ. We're ready to live for him and we're ready to die for him. Now, we know that Peter cuts off the right ear of the servant. And this is, this is not an act of cowardice, I don't believe, when he denies him a little bit later on. I think it's an act of confusion. He is, he's bold enough to say, I'll die for you, and I'm willing to face the sword, and I'm willing to die. But when he gets into the courtyard, immediately a little girl asks him, you're not one of them, are you? Oh, no, I'm not. Then later on, he's around a fire. No, I'm not. And he says, three times, I'm not among them. And I think Peter is just trying to assess the situation and figure things out and figure out what he's going to do. Next thing you know, he denies him three times. I think this is a confused moment for Peter. Maybe I'm just defending him, but it seems if it was an act of cowardice, he wouldn't have pulled out his sword and he wouldn't have attacked the servant of the high priest. Now, fifth, verse 51, Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched the ear and he healed the man. So now they're arresting Jesus. They're going to tie him up. So they're probably getting ready to tie him up. And they're kind of surrounding him. And Jesus is like, permit this. And he reaches up and he touches and he heals the ear. Now, this is his last miracle that he does. And it is with the arresting party that comes to arrest him. And that's powerful. It's also compassion on this man who just had his ear hacked off by one of the disciples who's been told for three and a half years to be peaceful, to walk in love, to care about people. And here he is, ah, wacky. And so, so Jesus touches his ear. But he's also using his sovereignty. Jesus is God and is sovereign to protect his disciple who had a free will and used it to cut off a guy's ear. So Jesus now protects him. 
Because what's going to happen to Peter now? Once Peter puts, the, cuts this guy's ear off, you have Roman soldiers there. They're arresting Jesus. What are they going to do now? They're going to arrest Peter. And when they bring him to the judge, which probably would be Pilate, and, and if they arrested Peter now, and they say, why is this guy here? Well, because he cut off that guy's ear. And Pilate would be like, one, two. that guy's got two ears. So Jesus took away the way they could arrest Peter. He's protecting him. And this is the way that God works with our free will. It doesn't mean in our free will we always make the right choices. We don't always make the sovereign choices in our free will. Sometimes we make the wrong choices. We make choices that God doesn't want us to make. That's very clear. God, the Bible says, don't want, let no one say when he's tempted that he's tempted by God. So if I make a decision to be tempted, if I'm on a diet and I decide to have my quiet time in a, in a donut place... And I, and I eat a donut and I break my diet. It's not because God made me do that. It's my choices that led there. So, so God doesn't sovereignly make us make decisions, but God sovereignly can clean up our messes from our free will decisions. I, I wonder how many times God's done that to you. I wonder how many times God's like, permit me this, put, put an ear back on people because we're out there like, yeah, I'm doing what I'm doing. And you get this free will and you're using it for what it's not intended for. Our goal is to walk with Christ and to use our free will for the things that God wants us to do. That's what we want to be doing. But our free will doesn't hurt God's sovereignty at all. And God's going to accomplish what he is going to accomplish despite the fact that you and I have free will. Now, this is an important point, And it's seen here clearly. Now, verse 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests, the captains of the temple, the elders, who came, uh, who had come to him. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs when I was with you daily in the temple? Did you not try to seize me? He's saying to them, why are you doing it here now in this dark garden? Why do you have all these police? You could have taken me at any time. Now we know they didn't want to because the crowds were on the side of Jesus. They didn't want to start a riot. They didn't want to, to turn people against them. So they wanted to get Jesus privately have their nighttime trials, which were illegal, and we'll talk about that here in the next coming few weeks. And they are now doing the work of darkness. Satan wants to kill Jesus, not knowing. There's enough Old Testament prophecies about the death of the Messiah for the sins of mankind that he might kind of figure out what's going on, but he's trying to stop it and thinks he's going to stop it by killing him. So Satan wants to kill him. But God's going to do his work despite Satan's free will, right? Satan has free will. But despite that, God's going to do his work in it. And so he says to them, finally, you could have arrested me in the daytime, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. God uses the power of darkness to bring the greatest work of, of salvation and atonement and redemption that the world will ever see. He overcomes darkness with light. Even though there's evil and darkness and a crucifixion and a scourging and beating, and it's all happening to a good man, out of that comes light. If you feel like there's some kind of a demonic presence around you, some spiritual demonic work going on, if you feel like there's some darkness in your life that's spiritual, how do you battle that? What's the best way to battle it? You, you don't need... So sometimes people will come to me, and I think this is probably in, in some traditions that they came from. They'll come and say, my house got something funky going on. 
can you come sprinkle holy water at my house? Can you come bless my house? And I'm like, no, I'm not going to go bless your house. I'm going to go sprinkle holy water at your house. First of all, I don't know where to find holy water. Secondly, just live for Jesus. Light always overcomes darkness. Darkness never overcomes the light. The only way that darkness wins over light is when the light goes out and then darkness overtakes it. When the light is turned on, darkness flees. Darkness always flees the light. And if you as God's children walk in the light, seek God, delight in him, abide in his word, let his word abide in you, walk in the spirit, then you, you will not have darkness in your life. You're going to be walking in the light. That's the way you walk in the light. And I love that because it's positive. It's not like the Bible says, flee the darkness. Like we're going to find ourselves in darkness all of a sudden be like, oh, I got to get out of here. The Bible says, walk in the light, the positive. I, I walk with Christ and he is the light of the world. And as I walk in the light, then everywhere I go, there will be light and the darkness will not comprehend it. The statement here by Jesus is simple. Darkness cannot win. Even though through their evil, they will hold him and they will kill him. And, and C.S. Lewis did such a great job on this particular point in the Chronicles of Narnia. When Aslan is finally killed and it is a work of redemption, it's incredibly powerful. If you've never read the, the, the Chronicles of Narnia, it's a great analogy of this very thing I'm talking about. Where through the darkness of the cross, which we look at and go, how horrible, there came this great light because Jesus is light and darkness can't comprehend it. Darkness cannot win. Light will always win. Now, three, three quick things in closing. Number one, you have the opposing multitude here in the garden and you will always have the opposing multitude. There are people who oppose us. There are people that hate us. Why, why do they hate us? Because we're supposed to walk in love? Because we're supposed to care for the needy? Because we're taking care of, of, of those that are, are hurting and suffering? Why do they hate us? They hated Jesus. Here you have confused disciples. They wake up, should we strike with a sword? And you will always have confused disciples. And sometimes we're the confused. Sometimes we're not quite sure what God wants us to do. And that's why we need to step back sometimes and figure it out. And I like, they were like, Jesus, do you want us to strike with a sword? Is that, what, is, that what, is that what you're looking for here? Number three, you have a determined savior to bring about the work of salvation so much so that he'll even, even correct something one of his servants did and he's still determined that people will get saved. That doesn't mean he determines people to get saved. It means God's doing a work of salvation and that's what this is all about. God desires all men to be saved and all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that work of the sacrifice is continuing on in our work as we shine as a light for him. And God wants you to water and to sow seeds. God's the one who brings in the harvest. The Bible says, let one man water, let another man plant, and God gives the increase. God's the one who's bringing people into the kingdom of God. But we're about that light of seeing God continuing the work that Jesus did on the cross. The work of salvation was finished. Don't misunderstand me. You got to be careful what you say or all of a sudden people will say all kinds of weird things about it. The work of Christ is finished, but we are continuing by bringing the work to the world so that people can see it and come to Christ. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the events that we see here in the garden, especially that your sovereignty is continued even through the free will of men, that you are not bound 
and can't do what you want to do because you gave man free will. And Lord, I pray that we would use the free will we have for your glory. Help us to be able to walk with you and thank you that when we do make bad decisions, you put ears back on people's heads. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.